Please take your Bibles and open them up to Genesis chapter 39, Genesis chapter 39. And if you are uh, new to the Bible, or if it has been a long time since you have opened one, it may help you to know that those large numbers that are in there are the chapter divisions, the small numbers that you're going to find there are the verse numbers, and we're going to look at the entire chapter of chapter 39 today, uh, Genesis 39. Before we do, I have to admit that uh, this is an excellent passage. This is a wonderful passage. I, I am really excited about Genesis 39. Um, I'm really, I am far less excited about my notes on Genesis 39. Uh, it has been, there is so much here that it has felt like when you pull on one thread, it all begins to like pull elsewhere. And, uh, and so I have struggled this week to put it all together. And typically when I have thought of Genesis 39 and Joseph in Potiphar's house, there's that one incident that comes to mind, that temptation. And, and generally this passage is looked at as only a, a, a story about how to help us deal with temptation. And it certainly is that, but it is far more than that. As Moses is writing this to the people of Israel, as they are preparing to go into the promised land, he has more to communicate to them than, than just that warning. It is that warning, but it is, it is far more than that. And one of the fascinating things is working through this passage is how there are so many connections that, that Moses is making from things that he has written earlier to things he is, well, to what will come later. Some that he will write, but then other authors of scripture are going to pick up some of the threads in this passage and take it and run with it. And I will just tell you right now, we are not going to explore all of those threads. There's just not enough time. Well, there, there is enough time, but there's not enough time that you're going to give me to do that. And, uh, and so hence why I am far less excited about my notes than the passage. But what we need this morning, more than anything is for God to work in us. So would you join me in a word of prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing this morning? Father, your word tells us that your works are great. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Father, we do desire to delight in your word. We pray that as we open your word and study it, that it will... You, by your Spirit, will open us up. And you will cause us to see not only what you have in your word, but that you will cause us to see in our own heart and our own lives those things which need to be addressed. So, Lord, join with us this morning. Help us. In Christ's name, amen. And it is the beginning of baseball season. And in 19, I figured I'd give a open with a baseball illustration. So if you don't like baseball, neither do I. But I'll start with one anyway. In 1919, the Chicago White Sox were playing the Cincinnati Reds. And uh, as they were playing, they were playing in the Cincinnati, they were playing in 1919, the World Series. And in those days, uh, 
the World Series was nine games, not seven, which tells you that life must have been really boring for them to have enough people who wanted to watch nine games of baseball rather than just seven. I know some of you are really offended right now, but I'm going to keep offending you for a little bit more. Um, Nine games of baseball, but the, the Chicago White Sox were a really good team that year, hence why they made it to the World Series. But someone, right before the series started, someone offered them all $100,000, which today would be, well, with inflation, you know, it would be a couple million dollars. It would be, and for that time, an extraordinary amount of money. So this, this team offered this. Many of them took it. And they began to play badly all of a sudden in the World Series. And people started watching after they lost. They started watching the World Series, listening. All of a sudden started asking the question, how could these players who were so good and so dominant throughout the season, how could they be so inept now? And they started questioning, is there, was there money involved? And they began to investigate. An investigation was launched. And sure enough, they found out about the money, found out about everything. And, and the men eventually confessed to, the, uh, to, to being guilty for taking the bribe. They were called by the judge who sentenced them the Chicago, not the Chicago White Sox, but the Chicago Black Sox for this. And each of these players was from this point on banned from ever playing Major League Baseball ever again. Which, honestly, that's, to me, that's a blessing, right? But I think for these men, that was a curse. What we're going to look at today is the temptation of, a, of Joseph, who felt and endured extraordinary temptation. And yet, he persevered through it. And as we walk through this chapter, we're going to see that it's there, but we're going to see that it's, it's more than that. The very first thing that we see when we come to this chapter in Genesis chapter 39 is actually not the temptation. In fact, the temptation actually only comprises that middle section. This, this passage is set up in what scholars, Bible scholars, would call a chiasm, all right? And if that word is unfamiliar to you, it doesn't matter. Basically, what it means is that the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage are parallel one to another, and the middle part of the passage is there at the peak. It is all driving towards the middle, but it's based on the foundation. It's leading and ending with these themes that are similar. And so we're going to look at some of those themes. And we see this first theme is the humiliation of Joseph. That is, Joseph descends deeper and deeper into humiliation. We see this. In fact, Joseph, in his life, we see that there are three humiliations that he experiences. And this passage recounts two of them. The first one we would have seen in Genesis chapter 37, verses 24 and 25, where Joseph is lowered, thrown down into the pit. That's one humiliation. He, is a, he goes from the place of preference, the place of prestige in the family, 
even though he is one of the youngest sons, to literally being at the bottom of the pit, hated by his brothers. And then this passage at the end of chapter 37, and this passage recounts it there in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Joseph was sold into slavery, and he is taken down into Egypt away from his family, away from the promises, what would appear to be the promises of God, away from the power of God, because in the time period in which Joseph lived, in in all the cultures and in all the religions and all the nations, they understood that their God's power extended only to the reign or to the ends of the authority of whatever nation worshipped that deity. And so by the world's account, God had no power here. And Joseph is taken down as a slave into Egypt. That's the second humiliation. The third humiliation we find at the very end of the chapter in verses 19 and 20. Where Joseph is thrown into a prison. And he's thrown into a prison, we're going to see, because of his faithfulness to the Lord. Let me read through the entire chapter. And then we'll, we'll come back and we'll see this, all right? Now, Joseph had been taken... Well, we, we just read verse 1. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him, that is, Potiphar made Joseph overseer of his house, and all that he had And over all that he had, he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus, Potiphar, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then? Can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened. About this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the other men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. 
Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened, as I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. You see that second, that third, rather that third humiliation being thrown into the prison for doing what was right. So he is thrown into the pit, he is taken down into Egypt, and now he is thrown into the prison. And, and one author put it this way, the, the further Joseph descends in social rank, the closer he gets to the throne. Which seems the exact opposite of anything we would expect in real life. We might look at it this way, the more Joseph is humbled and humiliated, the closer he gets to the glory that God had promised him. It is impossible for any of us to conceive of the humiliation that Joseph repeatedly experienced. Hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, and as a slave, he doesn't lose hope, doesn't bemoan his situation, doesn't cry and complain. He works, he works well, he works hard. The Lord is with him in all that he does, and he he rises in status. Only then, because he does what is right, only then to be cast into prison. But Joseph acts by faith. And with each step, with each fall, Joseph gets closer to the promise that God has made to him. In this way, Joseph serves as a glorious picture of Christ who humbled himself, becoming obedient to the entire law of God, becoming obedient even to death, death on the cross, Paul will write to us in Philippians chapter 2. Taking the form of a servant, and trusting himself entirely over to the Lord and to the promises of God that he saw there in Scripture. The Son of God came into the creation that he had made. And John 1 tells us that the creation that he had made knew him not. He came to his own and his own received him not. That is, they rejected him. He too was sold for money, wrongfully accused, unjustly condemned. And he endured great humiliation at the cross as he bore the guilt of sinners there. But because Christ endured the cross, endured the shame, he was highly exalted. His name above all names. His glory above all. And brothers, Joseph, in this way he pictures Christ, but he 
He pictures for us the way that God calls us to follow him. God does not often call his saints to follow him through on streets lined with gold. Those streets we will yet walk on in a day to come if we have put our faith in Christ. But in this life, those streets that we walk on are often paved with suffering and hardship. We have all too often come to expect things to, to come easily to us. Often nowadays, people expect that after they, they take a job, Within a year or two, they will receive an extraordinarily great promotion, a big pay raise. They're they're expecting something big. Joseph is here. We told at the end of chapter 30, in chapter 37, that Joseph is, is 17 years old. In chapter 40, when Joseph finally meets the king and stands before him, we are told that he is 30 years old, which means for 13 years... He suffers as a slave and then as a prisoner. And we're not sure the the division between them. But for 13 years, he lives this. And you and I, we, we know, if you have read the Bible, you know how it ends. You know that there is yet to come. He rises. Joseph is simply living on the promises that God has made to him. The story of Joseph reminds us that the way of life, that the way that God calls us to is not a way of ease. It is a way of hardship and suffering, one that we must be ready for. We have all come to expect things to come to us easily with a click of a button with two-day free shipping. Minimal pain, minimal inconvenience, minimal hardship along the way. But Joseph shows us that the way of Christ is the way of suffering. It is a way of trial. Because God is far more interested in what he will do through us and in us than he is in achieving some level of comfort for us in this world. He has broader, bigger, better plans than that. So why are we anxious? What are we scared of? What are we so angry at? Joseph had every reason to be anxious, every reason to be scared, every reason to be angry. And we are never given a window into how Joseph feels or what he thinks. But I think it's reasonable for us to assume that there are days, weeks, months, perhaps, when Joseph was wrestling with these things internally. But despite it all, Joseph perseveres in the faith. He serves. He serves faithfully. And he shows us how we are to walk. And in this, Joseph trusts in God's purposes and promises even when he is condemned and condemned wrongly. This is, the, this is a powerful theme all the way from the beginning of Genesis to the end. 
That God, who reigns over all things, will, he will without a doubt, and he cannot fail to fulfill every single promise that he has made. No matter what it feels like, no matter how it appears to us, God wins. And Joseph needed this truth. He needed to be reminded of this truth. And brothers and sisters, he lived this truth. And so must we. The whole book of Genesis proclaims this this idea that God will fulfill what he has promised. We see this in Adam and Eve. They they failed to live in light of, of the promises of God. Abraham, through trial and failure, he must learn to trust God's word, God's purposes. So must his two sons, or his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob. And Joseph, though hated and despised by his brothers, captured with the intent to be killed but yet sold, And then wrongfully accused, Joseph trusts. Those dreams that Joseph had, you remember all this is is based on those dreams. All of Joseph's faith is based on those two dreams that God gives him in the night. Those dreams where he is going to be bowed down and revered by his family. Joseph is, is living in light of the promises that God made to him in those two dreams. Brothers and sisters, we have a far better, a far more sure word of testimony than a couple of subjective dreams from a decade or two ago. We have God's word. We have the word of God, the living word of God, Christ Jesus, who has given himself for us. So much greater, far better promises we have. We see this in this chapter that despite everything else, Joseph is trusting and relying on the presence of God and that God's presence with Joseph is the root and the foundation of all of the blessing that Joseph experiences. From chapter 37 to the end of the book of Genesis... The name of God, Yahweh, Lord, in capital letters, is only given to us nine times. Eight of those are in this chapter. This is Yahweh, Lord, you see it there in all caps repeatedly. And God's presence with Joseph assures him that he is given favor in the sight of his master. God's presence assures that whatever Joseph does will prosper, it will succeed. Whatever Joseph puts his hand to, it is, it is growing, it is excelling. Not because Joseph is so skilled or so wise or so great. But Moses traces all of Joseph's success to the presence of God. And this presence of the Lord isn't merely a way of saying that God is around The presence of the Lord here is 
is in the theme and in the story and in the narrative of Genesis, it conveys to us that Joseph is one with whom God has covenanted a relationship. He has made special, unique promises to. He has committed himself to Joseph in a unique and powerful way. We see this all the way through from Abraham, who is with the Lord. And, and the fact that he is with the Lord becomes the reason why Abimelech, earlier in Genesis, wants to make a treaty with Abraham. And then the same thing we see with Isaac, because Abimelech sees the, the, that the Lord is with Isaac, he wants to make a treaty with him. And now we see this not only with Joseph, We see this going forward. At the word of the Lord that, that, that God is with Joseph despite his slavery, despite his imprisonment, despite the darkness. What Joseph saw and trusted in entirely was the faithfulness of God to his own promises. So Joseph experiences blessing himself, but it is not just Joseph. It's also Potiphar, and it's also the prison warden himself who experiences the blessing of Joseph. Joseph has the presence of God, and so Joseph is blessed. But not only Joseph, but Potiphar's whole household is blessed because of it. All that he does in the household and in the field, all that belongs to Potiphar is blessed because the Lord is with Joseph. And then when Joseph is sent to prison, the blessing follows him there so that the prison warden, the guy who's in charge of it all, he leaves it all in Joseph's hand because the blessing of God follows him. And in this way, that promise of God to Abraham him, that through him and his descendants, God was going to bless the nations, we see that beginning here, don't we? Joseph is beginning to be a blessing, not only blessed himself, but now a blessing to the nations. Again, in a small way, picturing ahead of time of what Christ will ultimately do in a far better way. Joseph is being blessed and he is a blessing. And we see the connection, the, the connective tissue between Joseph being blessed and the presence of God and his blessing others. We see that in Joshua chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. But in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, God assures Joseph of his presence saying, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And in the next two verses, Joshua is commanded to be strong and courageous in light of God's presence with him. And then the Lord defines, what does it mean for Joseph to be strong and courageous? Does it mean, I mean, we know the task ahead of Joseph, I'm sorry, Joshua, is to lead the people of God into the promised land, which will involve war and fighting. But the thing that we find is going to be defining of strong and courageous, we see in verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous 
and then you will have good success. There's that word. We, throughout Genesis 39, we see this idea of success. Success. It follows prosperity. It follows Joseph. And here it is tied with, jo- with Joshua's faithfulness to the word of God. And this is picked up in Psalm 1, which we read earlier, where the one who follows the Lord, the one who is the blessed man, the happy man, he is the one who delights in the word and meditates on it. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. He prospers in all that he does. And so the root of Joseph's prosperity with the Lord being with him is Joseph's faithfulness to the promises, to the word of God. Just as it is for you and I. But I don't know about you, this, is, this may not be too hope-giving. You think about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who delights in the word, meditates on it day and night. There it's not just the activity of meditating on God's word day and night. And I think if most of us were to be polled honestly, how is our meditation on God's word regularly, day and night going? How is that working for you? I think most of us would admit there's too many parts of our day where the word of God is just not in our thinking. But what the blessed man is in Psalm 1 isn't just someone who is regularly doing the work of meditating on it. It's the, it's the person who delights in the word of God. Well, there we're not just talk, talking about an action. We're talking about a, a heart attitude. Who among us can honestly say that we delight in God's word like this. Can any of us say that, oh yes, absolutely, this is me? Oh, certainly I'm sure that there are times in our lives where we find ourselves delighting more in God's word, regularly meditating on it, and there are times where we fall woefully short of that. Is it any wonder that there is such little blessing? Is there any wonder that we experience such little spiritual prosperity? If we could put our lives under the microscope and we were forced to give an answer for everything we did, I, I am afraid that we would see that our lives look far more like those whom God says he is going to judge than those whom God promises to bless. But where you and I fail, Christ succeeds. What Joseph here is picturing is is not only the way for us. What he is picturing is what Christ ultimately does for us. Our hope fully and finally isn't that through hard work and diligence that we can become this righteous man. That we can force ourselves to do and delight Our hope is in Christ. 
Even as we pursue this ourselves, our hope for this fulfillment is in Christ who has fulfilled it for us. He is the truly and perfectly blessed man. He is the one who is with God and is God. He is perfectly obeyed and delighted in the word and the will of God all of his days. And so it is, Isaiah 53 tells us that the word that the will of the Lord prospers in his hand. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, he had a Latin phrase to describe the hope in Christ. Extra nos. That's not extra nos as if you need extra nitrous oxide, as if, Moses, or as if uh, Martin Luther was worried about going faster with his medieval cart. Uh, this isn't a, a medieval form of nitrous oxide or a medieval form of like uh, the fast and the furious. What he's talking about here is extra nos. It means outside of us. Outside of us. That is, that Christ has fulfilled the law of God outside of us perfectly. Luther understood the teaching of the Bible that you and I, we are dead in our sins, helpless, helpless to fulfill the commands of God on our own, helpless to come to God on our own, as Christ says in John 6. Sin has stained and twisted our our mind and our emotions, our will and our desires. But what we cannot do for and within ourselves, Christ does for us, outside of us. Christ obtained an infinite righteousness so that all who trust in him by faith may be declared righteous in the sight of God. Having the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Friend, this morning, Jesus stands ready to forgive. Ready to apply his righteousness to your account. Brother and sister in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ and turned from your sin long ago, but finding in your heart, your life today, a soul that has wandered and is wandering, has been pursuing other things. Brother, turn back to Christ. You do not need to do extra works to be favorable toward him. Christ has done it himself. We do not approach God with our own righteousness. We approached him with the righteousness that has been done outside of us, the righteousness of Christ done for us. And Christ stands ready to be our advocate before the Father, pleading his own blood, his own sacrifice. So look to him. Trust in him. And if you would like to know more about how you can come to know Christ as your Savior, to urge you after the service, talk to me. I'll be in the lobby. Call the church this week. My cell phone number is there in the worship, front of the worship guide. I invite you to text, to call. We could set something up. I'd love to share with you how you can know this Jesus 
who has succeeded where you and I and all of us have failed. But the last thing that we see in this text is how Joseph endured temptation, yet though tempted and tried, yet he remained true, yet he remained faithful. Joseph is a slave. He is owned as property of Potiphar. Because God has been with him, everything prospers in his hand. Everything is growing in influence. And we're we're told that he is a, a man who is handsome in form and appearance. This phrasing has been used elsewhere to describe Rebecca. And it will be the description that is used later to describe uh, King David and others. Potiphar's wife notices how handsome he is. Notices how everything he does is successful. And she is his master's wife and she uses that place as as an opportunity to, to pressure him to do what He is not to do. And day after day, she pressures him. And you see the reason that he gives in the second half of verse 9 about why he cannot go with her. After giving this long speech, you're my master's wife, how could I do this? You would almost expect him to say, how could I sin against your, your husband, my master, who has treated me so well? But he doesn't say that. He says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know, Joseph is is far from home, far from the, the knowledge of anyone else. He is living in a different country with a different culture. And unlike his brother Judah whom we saw last week, merely had to see a, a prostitute alongside the road and he was like, I'll go into her. Joseph here, day after day, is pressured, is tempted, and he refuses. Because Joseph understands that though he may be in a different country, the rule, the sovereign rule, and the moral rule of God knows no boundaries. And that there is a standard of righteous living for those who would follow after God. Proverbs 6, 32 But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful desires. Countless passages in scripture warn against this. Joseph took this to heart. The world we live in will have a different moral code than we do. But we will one day answer to King Jesus. We will not answer to Facebook. We will not answer to Twitter. We will not answer to the Supreme Court. We will not answer to the president or to whatever media or businesses decide. We, we will answer you and I. We will give an account for every word done, for every image looked at, for, for every pixel on our phone. We will give everything. We will give an account to the Lord on the last day. What's driving devotion, what's driving Joseph here, you'll find out, isn't just his, some devotion to purity. I need to be pure, I need to be pure, I need to be pure. What's driving him is a devotion to God. How could I do this and sin against God? That's incomprehensible. 
Which is incredible because there's, for many of us, we would look at Joseph's situation and we would say, if that was me and God had led me to become a slave and God had, would lead me to become a prisoner, well, then all bets are off. But the upshot of Joseph's decision, because he denied himself, repressed his desires, remained pure, and devoted himself to the Lord, this the world laughs at, his and ours. Yet the world is blessed because of it. If Joseph had slept with Potiphar's wife, he would never have gone to prison, it's true. Had Joseph, however, never gone to prison, he never would have met Pharaoh's prisoners. And later, he would never have been brought to Pharaoh's attention. He never would have interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, never would have been put in the position of extraordinary power in Egypt. And Egypt, along with countless other people groups, would not have survived the terrible famine that was coming on them. The family of Jacob never would have come down to Egypt for food, never would have been saved by Joseph. And if Joseph fails here, there is no Israel, there is no law of God on Mount Sinai, there is no Joshua, there is no King David, there is no temple, there are no priests, no prophets, no Jesus, no cross, no empty tomb, no salvation for anyone. But because Joseph keeps his pants zipped, because he remains faithful to the Lord, Because his devotion is first and foremost to God. He is a blessing not only to those over him. He is a blessing to the world. Brothers and sisters, sin always costs more than it offers. It takes more than it gives and it scars far more than it ever serves us. So flee temptation. Fight for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Fight with the power of the Holy Spirit by the word and in prayer. In the words of James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Fight sin with the absolute confidence that you and I have in the promises of of God and all that he has assured us of in Christ. Whether as a slave, as a prisoner, or in the midst of serious temptation, Joseph displays courageous faith. We are called to display such faith as well. At home, on our computers, on our phones, at work, in the car, We are called to display such faith. In the 16th century, there was a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. He is a notable Protestant reformer. And he was asked by King Henry VIII, who, if you know anything about King Henry VIII, was anything but a good and righteous man. He had eight wives. He was adulterous. He was immoral. King Henry VIII, it was customary for the the king to ask a notable preacher to come and preach. And so he asked Hugh Latimer to come and and preach to him. And Hugh Latimer 
took as his topic the warning against, of God against all immorality and adultery. And King Henry, angered by all of this, warned Hugh Latimer that the next Sunday when he returned, he was to begin his sermon with an apology to him and to recant everything that he had said. So Latimer returned the next Sunday and he began preaching by saying, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the mighty king, King Henry VIII, who has power to command you to be sent to prison and, can, and who can have your head cut off if it please him? Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? But Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give an account of yourself? Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all God's word. For his courage... Henry VIII respected him and allowed him to live. Although his courage would one day cause him to be imprisoned and then killed. And yet here at this moment, Latimer puts his life on the line, threatened with death and imprisonment. Or really imprisonment and and then death. He shows us what courageous faith looks like. Brothers and sisters, the way is hard. It is lined with humiliation and hardship. But if we will cling to God, to his word, and to his promises, we will be blessed. For we have, Ephesians 1 tells us, we have secured for us by Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So persevere. Go on. Trust in God and all that he promises us. Let's pray. Oh God, we confess that we too often, that we know the keen edge of temptation And you know better than us how often we fail and fall to it. Oh God, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Oh God, we pray that you will strengthen us, that we this week may showcase, no matter what may come, we may showcase courageous faith in you, a trust in your promises that will uphold us through every trial, and in the midst of every temptation. That we may not only be blessed, but Lord, that we may be a blessing to those around us. Oh God, have mercy on us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.